which is part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Today's teaching is by Pastor Daryl Ruin. Amen. First John chapter 1. Grab your Bibles. Good morning. It's a good day to be in his house today. Last week we started the first epistle of John, the beloved disciple, the one who leaned onto the chest of Jesus, the only one alive at the moment. We read together last week the letter in its entirety. That was strange for some of you. I did it for a few reasons. One, uh, because I wanted to wear that cool headlamp thing and turn out all the lights and close the curtains, and that was kind of fun. Um, I had I had the old school lantern, but didn't have enough oil for my lantern, so I couldn't trim my 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 lantern bright enough. So, uh, uh, in all seriousness, I, I wanted you to have a sense in what it might be like to have been the initial recipients of a letter from the last living, remaining apostle who walked and talked and spoke and touched Jesus Christ. They, they, didn't have, they didn't have your written scripture as such printed and copied for them for distribution. They didn't have it on iPads or in, on, on your iPhones. They, they didn't have the access to it. And so they, they gathered together probably on a Sunday evening in the dark, probably hiding somewhat from persecution. And, and they've heard they've got this letter from the apostle John. And, and they, they've just got to know what does he have to say. And so I I did what I did last week so that you would have a little bit of a sense of what it would be like to sit through the reading of that letter, which they would have been glad to do. It was strange for us, right? I mean, it was it was hard for you probably just to sit still through the reading of an entire letter, even even a short letter. Just praise God. It wasn't Romans or Isaiah or something, right? I did it also because I wanted to remind you that it's an actual letter from an actual person who lived in an actual time and place in our world. And it was written to an actual people, an actual flock, a a group of churches, small churches in different areas around Ephesus, not 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 churches too unlike our congregation, our body. And I wanted you to wanted you to get a sense of that, a reminder of of that, that this is a this is a personal letter, although it it was somewhat of a sermon. It, It was kind of a pastoral letter. As I mentioned, it was kind of like sitting down to talk to your grandfather and have one of those wise grandfather conversations where only he talks and you just listen, right? I mean, that, that's John at this moment. He's, he's nearing 100 years old. This is, this is the, towards the end of his life. And so we read it. We read the whole thing. But John, he has this pastor's heart. And so the letter is different than what you'd read in Galatians or you'd read in from James or, or in Hebrews or Peter's letters. It would be helpful for you, by the way, we're not going to do it here, don't worry, it'd be helpful for you to go ahead and read John's gospel as we're working through John's epistles. Uh, With that in mind, as uh, Ricky gave us a glimpse into, it would be helpful for you at the same time to read John's revelation. So grab John's gospel and his revelation and start reading it behind what we're doing here as we walk through the epistles. I think the gospel and the revelation will help unfold what he has to say in the epistles and vice versa. The, the, the epistle will help you to understand some of the things you maybe you've already heard him say in the gospels or in revelation. All right. You're going to see some repeated phrases in all three sections. Today, we're going to look at John's opening statement. The first four verses in his first epistle, chapter 1, it is, uh, it's like no other letter in the New Testament. 
for a few reasons, but you're going to notice right off the bat that there's no greeting. There's no greeting. And when we get to the end, you're going to notice that there's no ending salutation. There's not a list of people that get mentioned that we're so commonly used to when we read letters from Paul, who wrote the majority of our New Testament. You don't, you don't find that. I mean, this grandpa talk is, isn't going to mess around with greetings and how's this guy and this guy and grace and peace to you. He's going to skip all that as if to say, hey, I'm nearing the end here. We've got to get to business. John is going to start at the top of the crescendo, so to speak. And he's going to waste no time. He's just going to get to the, get to the top of the mountain. He's going to start with the highest idea in human literature, namely that the eternal took up residence on earth in time and space. He begins with a flood of connected phrases designed to give evidence as to why his testimony is true. So listen. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at, And touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard and proclaim. Are you notice some repetition here? To you also so that you, you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ. John, in order to give credibility, in order to give evidence of his testimony as true and dependable and reliable, he's going he's gonna to say some things here in a, in a list, and he's going to repeat a couple of them to help you understand that he's not just making this stuff up. What John wants to communicate is what his readers already knew, but he wanted to remind them, and so it would be helpful for us to be reminded, this far separated, of course, that John was there. How does he communicate that? He communicates it by saying, I, I, I am witness to that which was from the beginning. Now, I'll unpack that in a second, so just set it to the side. The things which we have heard, John heard it with his ears. He was there. He heard Jesus speak. He heard him talk. He heard him teach. The things which we have seen with our eyes. As if you could see any other way. He just wants to make absolutely clear. I, I, I saw it. I was there. I, I witnessed it. I didn't just hear it. And it wasn't just hearsay. Lest anyone be confused. I actually saw it with my eyes. Which we have looked upon. Now that seems a little redundant. He's already said that he's seen it. But now he says we looked upon. What you need to know in the Greek is that it's a completely different word. I'll not bore you with the, the word differences. But, but here's why it's cool is because he's, he said in the first word I see it. And that just means to look at it. And, and you can look at something and not really understand it. Right? But then he goes on and he uses a whole other word. And that's why it's translated in your translation. Probably something a little different. Like he looked upon or he gazed upon or he beheld it's a, it's a different idea. What it means there is, is that I didn't just see it, but I looked at it as if to, as if to say I understood what I saw. Uh, have you ever met a blind person and them ask you if they can, if they can look at your face? You may have that. You catch the oddity of that phrase. A blind person asking you if they could look at your face. 
Well, uh, I grew up, some of you know, in Florida. My mom was a career uh, 30-something year professor at the Florida School for the Deaf and Blind. So I grew up around deaf, blind, and severely handicapped children. And my mom taught these children, and I would end up in her class after I would get out of school. I would take a bus sometimes over to her school, and I would be in her class. And and her kids loved when me or my brother would show up in her class. And every now and then she would have a blind student in her sewing class, which is kind of cool, right? I mean, just be careful with the needle. Be careful with the scissors. But but they did it, man. It was awesome. Uh, And every now and then one of these blind kids, and it was kind of odd for me at first, they would say, hey, I want to see your, I want to look at your face. What does that mean? And I remember the first time they're coming at me like this. Where are you? I want to I see your face. It, have you had this happen? They don't want to see your face, right? Obviously what they want to do is they want to touch your face. They want to they they see you by embracing, by beholding you. Now, if you can, if you can kind of understand where that, where that comes from, then you might have a better idea of, of what John's talking about here when he says for the second time, I, I, I've not just seen it with my eyes, but I've looked upon it as if to say I've looked deeply into it. I've gazed upon it. I've tried to figure it out. I've tried not to just see it in passing, but to really understand it. It's this idea of, of reaching out and touching Christ's face, to see him with our hands even. And he goes even further and he says, I didn't just see him. I didn't just hear him. I didn't just I didn't just behold him or gaze upon him deeply. But I, I, I touched him with my very hands and, and several of us did. I, I'm one of those guys. I'm one of those guys that when. From the beginning was manifested here in time and space. I, I got to hear him. I got to see him. I got to. I got to understand and, and, and touch him. Certainly, John has in mind here when Jesus came back from the dead and he showed himself to the apostles and to many witnesses, Jesus would say, don't just look at me, but, but see in a, sense, in a sense of touching, behold my scars. It's me. Certainly, John probably has, has that in mind. So with those, with those things that lend to John's credibility, he's going to make five assertions regarding Jesus in this opening statement. All right? So hang on. I want to give you five things. I'm going to go ahead and give them to you up front, and then we're going to unpack them. Number one, he's going to tell us that Jesus is eternal. Easy enough. Number two, he's going to tell us that Jesus came in the flesh. Number three, Jesus brings fellowship with the Father. Number four, Jesus makes human fellowship a real possibility. And number five, we're going to see that Jesus, where's my number five? Seth, do you steal my number five? Fellowship with and through Jesus brings joy. So we're going to deal with that word joy a little bit. And we're going to find out that Jesus, he is, he's the access point for all these things. So let's start with the first one. Jesus is eternal. When we say that Jesus is eternal, John, and, and let me just stop here for a second. I get so used to preaching out of Paul's letters. If ever you hear me replace John's name with Paul, just know it's just habit. And so just understand that I mean John when I say Paul. Tracken with me? All right. Can you handle that? Bob, is that good? All right. So John is Paul. Paul is John. Flip that, reverse it. You, you get what I'm saying. Uh, when John says, as he opens up here, what was from the beginning He's referring to a person. 
He's referring to a person. Now, the person is the gospel, but he's not specifically referring to the gospel. We're talking about Jesus here. And what he's going to say to us here in not so many words is that Jesus is eternal. And if he's eternal, if he's from the beginning, what that implies is, is that he is divine. Jesus is divine. We get this most clearly in verse Two, the life was made manifest and we saw it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us. He's going to say later in first John five, eleven and 12, God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. He who has the son has life and he who has not the son of God has not life. And you remember these words from John's gospel that closely parallel In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing that was made was made. John 1. Jesus is the one we're talking about who was from the beginning. He was in the beginning. He's not created. He wasn't made. He, he, he wasn't a part of creation. He was prior to creation. Jesus is eternal. That means he comes before all time and space. He was there at the beginning when things were created. Did you know that about Jesus? I mean, you knew that about the Father. You knew that about God. But did you know that about Jesus? That Jesus isn't a New Testament creation. That Jesus didn't come to exist at his birth to Mary and Joseph. He came to exist in the flesh at his birth in Mary and Joseph. But he had always been. Jesus was from the beginning. So Jesus is eternal, i.e., therefore, he is divine. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. He has always been there. Number two, Jesus came in the flesh. So the first one, we get that. And, and, And John's readers would have got that. That was a little bit... Uh, of a given. It was an assumption that Jesus was eternal. He was divine. And that was granted on many occasions to the churches that John was writing to. That wasn't the point of argument. What was the point of argument was, number two, that Jesus came in the flesh, that the eternal came to the here and the now, to right where you and I are. The eternal becomes visible. That, That was a problem in John's day. It's a problem in our day. The fact that Jesus appeared from eternity now in the flesh was a problem. How he appeared, John makes clear, doesn't he? In verse 1, that which we have heard, that which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands. He came in, in other words, the flesh, flesh and blood, so that we can see him, hear him talk, embrace him, follow him, talk to him, lean upon his shoulder. He was here. And John was writing this letter in part, in great part, to refute those who were in the churches around John that he was shepherding, who were saying that that Jesus, while he might have been God, he certainly couldn't have come in the flesh because they had a real problem with the flesh. Another sermon later on in this epistle. Suffice it to say right here, right now, that John wants us to know that Jesus 
actually came in the flesh. I saw him. I heard him. I, I spoke with him. I didn't just see him, but I embraced him and I touched him with my very hands. He was actually here. It wasn't just a figment of my imagination. And he wasn't just a spirit that came from heaven and visited that wasn't in a real body. No, he was really here, real deal, in the flesh. This is his primary concern. He would say in his second epistle, in verse 7, Many deceivers have gone out into the world, men who will not acknowledge the coming of Jesus Christ. But he gets more specific than that. He's going to say, Men who will not acknowledge the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. In 1 John 4, 2, later on in our first letter, By this you will know the Spirit of God. Every spirit which confesses that Jesus Christ has come, but not just has come, has come in the, what? Flesh is of God. And every spirit which does not confess is not of God. So Jesus was not only eternal. John puts that out there right at the beginning. This is what I'm talking about. What I witnessed was from the very beginning, from the Father, from way back. But not only that, He came here so that I could see him, touch him with my own hands. He he was here in the flesh. He became flesh and dwelt among us. Number three, Jesus, John would contend in these very first opening verses. It's through Jesus that we gain fellowship with the Father. It's through Jesus that koinonia with the Father becomes available. The last part of verse three makes this clear. Our fellowship is with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. And so John believes that this word of life has brought access now to have fellowship, not only with him, but with the father. And he wants that to be understood right from the beginning. Jesus is the remedy to our break in fellowship with God. He is the bridge to that break. He himself bridges the gap. He restores koinonia between us and not just he, the son, but us and the father. All right. Uh, fellowship is, you, you, you know the word koinonia. I've already mentioned it now a couple times. If you need a definition for it, here's a helpful one. Koinonia, fellowship, is a personal experience of sharing something significant in common with another personal experience of sharing something significant in common with another. Here's what Jesus is able to do. And here's what John testifies that Jesus is capable. The one from eternity now in the flesh is able to repair the gap between us and God, that break that our sin brought to our fellowship with our creator. Jesus is able to repair that koinonia. And now we can have a personal experience sharing something significant in common with not just another, but with our Creator. Jesus restores that. Jesus puts us back on common ground with the Father. So Jesus is eternal. He came in the flesh. By that, He restores fellowship with the Father, but He says something else interesting. We don't just get fellowship with the Father and with the Son Via Jesus Christ, we get real fellowship now with humanity. Uh, The older you get, the more difficult it is to make real friends, isn't it? To to really get in deep relationships, isn't it? Uh, I gave you the end of verse 3, but look back at the beginning of the verse. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with, what is it? Us. 
so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son. So Jesus gives us access to have fellowship with Him, the Son, and also the Father. And that's, that's very important. But notice that in these initial verses, John makes it absolutely clear that one of the things that Jesus has restored or given us opportunity for via Jesus is that we can now have true, real fellowship, koinonia, with one another. Do you realize that that, that true depth of relationships as God has created it cannot exist as God has created it outside of Jesus Christ. There's nothing like true fellowship among believers. It, it, if you think about it, it actually transcends family relationships. Some of you have relationships in this body of Christ or in other bodies of Christ that you've been a part of that are closer than your actual blood family relationships. And it's not just because they're weird and they're like Cousin Eddie and you don't like them and they borrow money from you, right? I mean, that, that contributes to it sometimes. But I'm talking about even the good relationships, right? Do you have some of these good family relationships that are still not on the level that, that you would put with some of the relationships you, he, you have here in a church family? Why is that? It's because only in Christ can koinonia actually exist. Only in Christ can true fellowship between even human beings actually exist. Now, you knew that about you and your relationship with the Father, that you needed repair, and that koinonia could only happen via Jesus Christ, the one who goes between divine and human flesh, right? Because he was both, and so he can do that. And so we got that. But did you know that Jesus Christ restores or gives opportunity for us to have actual fellowship with one another? And I don't care how close you are to some of your family members. Listen, you will never be as close to them outside of Christ as you could be inside of Christ. There's something about sharing the common bond of your conversion that brings this unspoken unity, kinship and brotherhood and sisterhood and family. That's why that's why we push so hard here at Cornerstone that this is Cornerstone Church family. We're a church family. Why? Because some of you realize that, that these are the people you can depend on uh, and that understand and that get it, that, 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 that there are those out there, even among your own family, that don't understand what it means to have a peace that passes all understanding because they can't understand it. Because only if you have the Spirit do you understand what that means. Are you tracking with me here? Jesus creates this situation where now we can have a relationship and a fellowship, a koinonia, that is impossible outside of Jesus Christ. I hope you're finding it. I hope you're finding it here. Having Jesus in common, I don't know if you realize this, makes everything else possible. In the body of Christ, we, we, don't, we don't all come from the same backgrounds. We don't have the same history. We don't have the same story. We don't have the same demographics. We don't look the same. But somehow he is able to bring us into unity. That happens because at the foot of the cross, we all find common ground. Let me give you a sidebar here under the fact that Jesus makes human fellowship a real possibility. I want you to notice that uh, John's basis for fellowship here in these opening words, John's basis for fellowship is shared doctrine. Shared doctrine. What he's putting forth here, what he's giving testimony to, what he's saying and what he's going to say about Jesus Christ is the basis for our common fellowship and koinonia. 
Now, some of you, some of us at different parts and times and seasons of our life have found and tried to build koinonia and fellowship around shared experiences. And those can be very powerful and they can be beneficial. But I want you to notice, I think there's some value here, that John bases koinonia with God and with each other on shared doctrine. There's some common ground. While there may be some subtle differences on what we believe and what we gather from the Word of God, there has to be a basis of shared doctrine that put us on the same level playing field so that we can be family as God has intended. I mean, imagine in our koinonia with God if we said, okay, God, I know you say it's this way, but I really think it kind of works this way. So you have your way of looking at it and I have my way of looking at it. Is that really how koinonia is going to work with God and fellowship? No, there's some somebody's got to change. Guess who it is? All right. Now, when we bring that fellowship and koinonia down to our level, we're going to have some of those. I know you believe it's that way, and I, but but at some way we're going to have to figure it out. Right. John bases shared relationship and fellowship on shared doctrine. He's going to unpack what he believes about Jesus Christ, what he's seen, heard, touched, beheld, gazed upon. He's going to tell us what he believes to be the truth about the gospel and the one who who is the gospel message. And he's going to use that as the basis for fellowship. He's going to do it in great love. But but John, in, in this pastoral letter here, he's not going to compromise when it comes to doctrine. All right. Number five. Uh, I... You want a practical example of how that plays out? Um, Marriage to an unbeliever. Marriage to an unbeliever. That, That puts you at odds, doesn't it? You have a different world perspective. You have a different perspective on life. You have a different perspective on how to raise children. You have a different perspective on how to use money. You have a different perspective on what... Sunday should be about. You have a different perspective on what your career should look like. It, it gives you a different world view, right? Because Christ is your center. If Christ is not their center, it puts you at odds. Shared fellowship, listen, in marriage, which is a fellowship, which is, which is a, a category of koinonia, right? If there's not shared doctrine, theology, if there's not shared Jesus, then then there's not going to be true fellowship koinonia as marriage as intended to be. So just use that as an example. All right, number five. Jesus eternal in the flesh. He brings fellowship with the Father and he makes real fellowship with each other a real possibility. Number five. Fellowship with and through Jesus brings joy, John would say. Now I wrestled long and hard with this one. I'm pretty good at the others. You know, I mean, it's my job to have the basic theology points down. The eternality of Jesus. The incarnation of Jesus. That He was actually in the flesh. He wasn't just a a figment. He wasn't just a ghost. He wasn't just a spirit. He was here. And I know why that's important. That He restores fellowship with the Father. I get that. That He restores and makes possible real fellowship with one another. That's... That's a given for me. I understand that. I'm going to confess to you right now that where I'm most anxious for the Spirit to speak to us as we go through these epistles is in this three-letter word, joy. And that John would 
that John would put it forward as something that, that God wants for us and that it would be so important that he would put it right here in the, in the start, at the crescendo of his letter, he's going to start with joy. John asserts that fellowship with and through Jesus, so our fellowship with Jesus and the Father and fellowship that comes through Jesus to the Father and with each other, that fellowship brings joy. And so my question is, John, how does that work? How does that work? He wants something for us, doesn't he? I mean, it's clear. And we are writing this that our joy may be complete. It's a selfish desire, but it must be a godly desire. It must, be, it must be something that the Father wants for us. That John would communicate it in his word. And we are writing this that our joy may be complete. Uh, I struggle here because not every day is full of joy. How about you? Anybody, anybody want to testify that they have seen and heard and touched that? My concern as I prepare to preach this point in particular is that um, some of you might take this to mean that John's life was devoid of trouble or struggle or pain or disappointment or sickness or strife or tears. That's not true. We know it's not true. Please do not walk away today and either dismiss this letter or discount your own faith Because joy isn't how you would describe your daily living. Let me say that again. Because I worry worry about this. You know, I I could blow through a 30-minute sermon and I could say a bunch of stuff. And you could leave here and you you could completely just dismiss it. And my concern is not that you would dismiss anything that I would say, but you would dismiss any section of God's Word and you would even subconsciously say, well, that must, that's just irrelevant and I don't receive that because, because that just can't be right. And so let me say again, do not, do not leave this place and dismiss this portion of Scripture or discount your own faith because your joy in your daily living is, is not how you would summarize life. John's intent, I think. Listen. Here's what I think John's intent is, as I wrestle with this. Is to say that there is a well of refreshment for our most desperate lives found in Jesus. The one who has come from eternity into time, lived in the flesh like our own flesh, and surely felt human pain and anguish and disappointment and shed tears himself. I think John would have us to know that that one who was from the beginning, who came in actual flesh, and aren't we glad he did, the one who came in the flesh and dwelt among us is the only way that we can find joy in this world. I think think John is right there with us so that we don't have to leave this passage and say, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. 
If the Bible wants to tell me that life is just going to be full of happiness and joy and everything's going to be easy, then I dismiss it and I might show up for Sundays every now and then, but this, this really carries no weight because that's not, that's not what I'm finding. But that, that, that's not what John, I think, is trying to communicate. I think John is right where you, where you are. He knows pain. He knows struggle. He knows difficulty, disappointment. He knows tears for sure. He's watched all of his friends all those who've walked with he and Jesus are gone. And not in a pleasant way. The joy John speaks of is found in this world. Yes, it is found. But only because, only because the word has become flesh and dwelt among us. Why, why is John so... Why is he so concerned that we know that the eternal has come, that the word has been made flesh? The word that was with God from the beginning, that was with the Father, has been manifested, manifested. He says that twice here in four short verses. Why is he so concerned that we understand that the eternal has actually come in flesh and blood? I think in large part it's so that we are comforted. And so that we understand that, 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 that joy is found through Jesus. And through Jesus, perhaps, I would argue, only. I'm aware that joy might seem like an offensive subject to some of you right now. Right now. But, church, the joy John longs to share with us is available on our worst days. On our worst days. No wonder he mentions fellowship so early in his letter. Think about this with me. If you're going to start with such a high idea as the incarnation, the eternal becoming flesh, why is it that he jumps straight to fellowship? Why is it that he's written this so that we might, we might have joy via fellowship with God and each other? Why does, why does fellowship get put in these initial top-level, pinnacle, top-of-the-theological-mountain verses. Why is it? I, I, think, I think it's because he gets that joy. That joy is only found in Jesus and only, only is played out in those relationships. Let me, let me say it differently. How many of you can testify that the only respite of joy you have some days is in God and or among those who love God alongside you. And isn't it true that with, without fellowship, you're going to be left on your own trying to muster up some joy? I think what John is intending to communicate is that, is that the eternal became human. The divine became flesh. And it's a good thing he did. And if you want to say that he didn't, you're going you're gonna to mess some stuff up because I need my Jesus to be flesh and blood. I need him to have known pain and suffering and disappointment and heartache and, and, and illness and brokenness of body. I need to him, him to have known those things because there are some of my days and sometimes you might feel like those days are more often than not where the only joy you find is in Jesus Christ. Or in those who 
are following Jesus Christ alongside you. I hope you're finding that in fellowship. That sometimes joy only comes with those who are loving God through the thick and thin, just like you are. Jesus is eternal. He's flesh and blood. He brings fellowship with the Father. He makes fellowship with the brethren real and possible. And via that fellowship, we get to experience joy. Psalm 16, 1-3 says this. Just listen. Preserve me, O God, for in You I take refuge. Ever had that day? I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from You. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. That's the Word of God. That's the Word of God. Where does our joy, our hope, our encouragement come from? From the eternal becoming flesh and dwelling among us, we have fellowship with the Father and we have fellowship with one another and we can experience joy in Him and with each other and God has designed it that way. How else could it be biblical that God would allow the writer of Psalms to say, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. God intends for us and has designed it that we would delight in Him through each other and along with each other, alongside one another, holding each other up. God has designed it that we would delight in Him with each other. That's a lot for John in four verses, isn't it? And he starts big. He starts big. The eternal from the beginning became flesh, true fellowship and joy. What happens when you pull one of these pieces out? Does it all fall apart? It does. What happens if you say Jesus didn't really walk in human flesh? Does that matter? It does. The whole thing crumbles. I watched a movie yesterday. Twelve Years a Slave. Have you seen this? Based on a true story, it's got some mixed reviews. Um, the one thing I'll say about it is, is that after I watched it, I came away feeling like it, it, more than any other period piece that I've seen, it gave a picture of what true humanity at that moment must have been like and felt like. Um, it's the true story of a slave written or based upon a book by the same name. A guy named Solomon gets kidnapped and becomes a slave for 12 years. He's trying to fight to get back to his family. Free in the north, kidnapped and brought to the south. Uh, history tells us that he was one of the only few uh, slaves kidnapped from the north as a free man that escaped from his slavery in the south. He wrote a book. They made a movie about it, 12 Years a Slave. And I was watching it last night as I was finishing up this sermon. And um, there were a couple parts that struck me as relevant to our sin and to the way we approach even Jesus Christ. Master Epps was Solomon's third, I think, master in his 12 years of slavery, would be his final master. Master Epps gets confronted by a, uh, by a, a white uh, northerner who didn't believe slavery was righteous or justifiable. And the master, when confronted, um, the guy asks him, he says, you know, 
you're concerned about me and my well-being. He was doing some work on his house. He says, but I think it's kind of funny that you have no concern for the state of your own laborers. And Master Epps just kind of pauses and chuckles, and he says, they aren't hired help. They are my property. They aren't hired help. They're my property. They're something else. They're something different. As if to say they're not, they're not human. He goes on to compare them, in fact, to animals, baboons specifically. And as you think about slavery here in our nation in particular, the justification for slavery, uh, at least the justification that was used to sear the conscience of those who participated in it, the justification was, if I eliminate their humanity and consider them merely as property, then, then I can justifiably, in my own seared conscience, do with them whatever I want to do with them because they're not human. Later on, while whipping a female slave, Solomon cries out in the female slave's defense, Somewhere in eternal justice you will answer for this sin, Mr. Epps. And mid-strike, Mr. Epps, Master Epps, turns to Solomon and he says, Sin? There is no sin. These are my property. And it, it struck me, if we remove Jesus' humanity as they were doing in the first century and as we, we do in our day even, if we remove Jesus' humanity, that makes life awful convenient for, it, for us, doesn't it? You see, if you take away the slave's humanity, you're able to do with him or her as you please. There's no... There's no Justice to befall you because it's just your property. It's not human. And as they removed the humanity of Jesus Christ, guess what they also removed? They removed, therefore, his divinity. You see, because if Jesus didn't come in the flesh from the eternal, then his eternal eventually gets called into question. And this is mainly and primarily one of the false teachings that John was, was writing these words against. And it's a thought of our day as well. Don't, don't be fooled in thinking it's just a first century phenomenon. We would like to say that Jesus, he was a good guy. Maybe he was a, a real historical figure. Maybe he did actually exist. But he wasn't actually the eternal in the flesh. He, he really didn't come in that form, in that way. But John says, yeah, he did. I heard him, I saw him, I beheld him, I touched him. And that changes everything. If God became human in Jesus, then guess what? You can no longer be God in your own life. I'll close with a quote from John Piper. He says it better than I can, so I'll just read you what he wrote. This is the stumbling block of the incarnation. When God becomes a man, he strips away every pretense of man to be God. We can no longer do our own thing. We must do what this one Jewish man wants us to do. We can no longer pose as self-sufficient because this one Jewish man says we are all sick with sin and must come to him for healing. We can no longer depend on our own wisdom to find life because this one Jewish man 
who lived for 30 obscure years in a little country in the Middle East, says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. When God becomes a man, man ceases to be the measure of all things. And this one man, this one human, becomes the measure of all things now. This is simply intolerable to the rebellious heart of men and women. The incarnation is a violation of the Bill of Rights written by Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It is totalitarian. It is authoritarian, imperialism, despotism, usurpation, absolutionism. Who does he think he is? God. And if God came in the flesh, and if John's testimony is true, then that changes everything. It changes everything. You see, because... If we don't take away Jesus' humanity, then we, we, can't, we can't objectify Him. We can't put Him in whatever category we want to. If He is who He says He is, if He is God in the flesh, then guess what? That guy gets to make the rules. And if God has come in the flesh and has made the rules, I don't get to be the one in charge anymore. It changes everything. And so what would you say to a testimony of the one who leaned upon the breast of he who was from the beginning? The one we heard, seen with our eyes, looked at, touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That life was manifest. We saw and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life. That word proclaim, by the way, it uses the same root word as martyr. It's interesting. To the degree that the apostles were willing to proclaim this message was equal to martyrdom. Which was with the Father and was manifest to us, which we have seen and heard and proclaimed to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed fellowship with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. These things are right, so that our joy may be made complete. Pray with me. Father God, you've, you've started with a high note in this first epistle of John. But it brings great comfort and joy. And we're faced with a decision, Lord. We're faced with the decision that as we read the testimony of this one who says he was there and he saw him and he heard him and, and he spoke with him and he touched the, the scars after the resurrection, we've got to deal with, with this Witness to grace. We've got to deal with the testimony of the one who, who's sitting who's sitting to testify on, on your behalf. Father, I have a suspicion that there'll be a day when when we leave when we leave the flesh and we go to our eternal state that we'll have to stand before you. And I, I, I have a sneaking suspicion that, that there might be passages like the one we've just looked at that you bring up to us. And, and there might be a moment where you ask us, what did, what did you do with what my servant, what my witness said? Father, this pastor's prayer is that those who who are under the hearing of your word this morning, 
would run to Jesus, the eternal who was made to be flesh and dwelt among us, who took on sin, who climbed upon the cross, who willingly died to pay our debt of sin and then rose again to show that death and the grave could be conquered and, and that, he, that He was who He says He was. The prayer of this pastor for those under the hearing of these words this morning is that this testimony would ring true in the core of our being. Holy Spirit, open the heart of the darkened one in this place. That still small voice, allow it to penetrate and whisper to them, maybe in a way that they don't even completely fully understand, but whisper, Lord, truth. That this testimony of, of John, it's real and it's true and it's trustworthy and it's, it's your testimony, God. Call your children home. Bring them to repentance and bring them to faith in Jesus Christ who restores fellowship from heaven to earth and back again. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.